special treat for you all. You are about ready to see a premiere footage, premiere footage of, that's right, the Powerball winners. Show uh, the video here. Here it is, okay? This is these guys uh, earlier this evening. You can see the guy there at the top. He's kind of counting down the numbers. Uh, this is in a restaurant here on the East Coast. Look at these guys. Uh, I think it was like $1.5 billion, man. Crazy. Look at that. Everyone's dancing around, high-fiving. Uh, the story is that one of, the, one of the waiters actually like took off his apron and said, I quit, okay? Pretty, pretty crazy. Um, actually, I just lied to you. Um, if you know anything about the story, this was last Wednesday, and these guys um, got yet the day before's numbers. And so they were all looking at the day before's numbers, the wrong numbers, and they had all of them right. Can you imagine that moment? Seriously, I mean, one of the dudes literally just like, I quit! And he like rides off in, in a train of glory, right? And at that point, I think the total was like 700, you know, million, pretty menial number. Um, but imagine that. I mean, you go, these guys, they probably all went in together. I and mean, they, they go thinking they're each going to get whatever out of it, you know, like 50, 60 million to nothing, Pretty crazy. I don't normally have props, but I do have one this evening. Uh, here's, my, here's my ticket. Um, I went, and I have to be honest, I just, I went uh, earlier tonight really just for illustration purposes, but I'm not saying I'm going to give it up if it happens to be <laughs> the right numbers, and I'm certainly going to check. But sir, can you imagine like $1.5 billion, Right? And then people have said, well, uh, but, but you gotta have, you got to add taxes in there. Okay, $900 million, <laughs> right? Like, it's been fun to listen to people the last couple of weeks because everyone has become a 30-second billionaire, right? Because everyone's wondering, everyone's thinking about it, right? Like, so, so what would you do if you all of a sudden were a billionaire? And it gets kind of fun to, to think about it, right? It, it's crazy to me. I actually shared this with you guys a few weeks ago, but... I had this moment again with all the Powerball stuff last Wednesday, walking to the gas station and like hearing in my head that I had just created the voice of God, right? And it was like, Mark, go buy a ticket now, right? Like tonight it's going to happen, right? Like this is going to be. So have you like gotten into all that? Have you processed it all? Like what you would do? My, my mom was here at the first service, right? And it's fun to think like, hey, mom, I love you. Thank you for birthing me. Thank you for the new Pumas you bought me tonight. Here's 50 million, right? Like, I love you, mom, right? Like, I don't need the mom heart, Tad. I can just give you 50 mil, right? You start thinking about all the poverty you can help. It's pretty crazy. There's not too many success lottery stories, though, right? Like, you don't get on the internet and see a bunch of bliss and joy from people who won the lottery. A lot of suicide, I think what happens, right, is you think, I'm not telling you anything new, you think it's going gonna, it's gonna to provide you something that it ultimately doesn't. And I think the one thing that everyone is after, every single person in this world, is after love. And, and all of a sudden you, you come into this windfall of money, and I have to think that all that the money does is confuse love, and in particular, confuse the love of God. 
What I mean is, it's like all of a sudden, maybe your need for God diminishes quite a bit. That's why Jesus taught, like, it's very, very difficult for the rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Because he seemingly has everything he needs. Like, God, now I'm just going to build my own kingdom. God, now I'm just going to do my own thing and forget his desperation for the love of God. Uh, Tonight is one of those uh, teachings where if I had four or five sermons to preach before I was going to die, uh, this would rank up there. I believe that many of us uh, are very, very confused about God's love. I'm very passionate about the subject because I'm passionate about you. I have to remind all of you yet again, even though I haven't met some of you, um, I'm not doing this for my health. Uh, I'm doing this because I believe God has called me to shepherd God's people, communicate his word. But I do so with a tremendous amount of love and care for you. And my heart breaks with the understanding that I know there are those here tonight, many of which are here tonight, are very, very confused about God's love. I think there's several reasons for that. I want to give you six, and I'm wondering if maybe you're fitting into any of these categories. Number one, I think God's love can get confusing under condemnation or disobedience. I mean, some of you have been hearing for years, months, days, weeks, you're not good enough, you're not forgivable, consistent condemnation from others, from the enemy, the lies in your head. Others of you are feeling that way because you're on the hamster wheel of disobedience. You can't like get off the, the hamster wheel. It's just like the, this continual feeding from the faucet of your flesh. And in doing so, the, the disobedience has created this distance between you and God. And so you started to doubt the very thing that you need the most. I know for sure there are a ton of folks in that category tonight. You're longing to experience, encounter, know God's love again but your disobedience continues to further the distance and it it, it continues to breathe the lie in you that you can't turn back, you can't repent, he won't accept you. I think some of you are confused about God's love because you've gone through pain, suffering, or trial. How could God love me if he allowed this to happen? Why did God take this person from my life, albeit relationship or from sickness or death? Uh, you guys hear it just as much as I do, right? Like all of a sudden, uh, chaos ensues in someone's life and they say things uh, like, why and how could God, who is love, do that? Some of you are confused tonight from God's love uh, because you're in a period of what feels like God's silence. You had a season where you felt like God was very communicative with you, that he was uh, clearly sharing things with you. But for whatever reason, uh, right now you feel like it's like, is anyone up there? You know, is this thing on kind of thing? God, where are you? And so because you, you stop trusting that God's word is the consistent voice of God, you believe that God doesn't care anymore. Maybe he did at one point, but he's lost interest. Some of you believe that. God's lost interest. He used to love you, now he doesn't. Number four, some of you, uh, God's love has gotten confusing because you haven't or aren't or going through a situation where you're not experiencing love from others. Some close to you have betrayed you. You found out about the gossip train that has gone against you. And so then you've taken the love that you experience from brothers or sisters in Christ or friendships 
and then all of a sudden you surmise in your mind, because they don't love me, then God must not either. Because they claim to be Christians. They claim to follow God. So if they're God's people, then how could God be a loving God and love me if they don't? I mean, so far I, for one, have struggled with every single one of these. Some of you have gotten confused on God's love because you're in a season of plenty, like uh, the lottery example. I don't need God's love like I used to. I used to be desperate for it. Like, I used to need it for life, every breath. But now I'm kind of like, I'm in a good season. I'm kind of doing my own thing. Like, I, I don't, I've got the girl that I finally, you know, wanted to date for so long. I got the right job. I'm paying the right bills. My car's got white rims on the, you know, like, I'm, I'm kind of doing all right. Right. I don't need God's love anymore. And some of you, listen, could you just hear it for a second tonight? There will be never one day, never one day, where you are not desperate for God's love. And some of you have belief that you can make it on your own. And finally, this is where Corinth finds itself tonight. God's love can get confusing during pursuits of religion, legalism, or loose liberty. You start fighting the wrong battles in the wrong war. You start believing that it's about following laws. You start taking liberty and Christian freedom way to the extreme. And in doing so, God's love can get confusing. Now, why does this matter? Next slide. Here's why it matters. If God isn't loving, then God isn't gracious. And if God isn't gracious, then God can't save. And if God can't save, then God isn't God. And it's crazy to think about how quickly we go from doubting God's love to God isn't God. Now can you understand why this is quintessential? Well, this is what is going on in Corinth. Okay, we've seen their confusion about a whole lot. Uh, They were confused about uh, marriage. They were confused about divorce. Uh, They were confused about sexuality. Again, it's an area of the world where you have brand new believers, and so they're trying to figure out how to live life now as a Christian. They're very confused. They probably write a letter to Paul, wherever Paul is at the time, seeking answers. And so what we've been studying now for a long time is Paul's answers to those questions. Tonight, in a uh, topic of food idolatry, all of a sudden we're going to get an unbelievable teaching on God's love. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to slow down our pace a bit tonight. We've been studying uh, verse by verse through 1 Corinthians uh, since what feels like Nam, but uh, we're we're about five months in, uh, six months in maybe, and um, we're about at the halfway mark, okay? So by my math, I will be done by the turn of the millennium. Chapter 8 tonight, we're only going to study six verses. Beautiful, beautiful language, and I hope and pray that you hear my heart for you in all of this. If you have ever, including tonight, been confused about God's love for you, please see what Paul has to say. Verse 1, chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, see the quotation marks, all of us possess knowledge. This, again, quotes, knowledge puffs up, but love, what does the scripture say there? Come on, builds up. Now, A first food offered to idols. Let me bring some clarity here. Uh, This area of the world, 
okay? Corinth is polytheistic, which means there's a God for everything. Many, 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 many gods, okay? Oh, oh, look, there's a, a horse trough. There must be the God of the horse trough, okay? Oh, look, there's a nice white table. I'm sure there's a God for that, including the one on the opposite side, okay? Not only was it polytheistic, it was also polydemonistic. Uh, in other words, uh, very much a belief in tons of evil spirits. In, in fact, there was a belief in Corinth that, that there was even evil spirits in meat, right? And some of you dudes are like, no, like that just can't be true. And I'm not talking about salmonella here. I'm talking about like, like, like red, like cow, like meat, you know, like a little prime rib up in there. You know, like, it, it was thought that it was e- like there was evil spirits in that. So here's what's happening. These pagan gods would have priests in their temples. And I use that word priest lightly. These priests would offer sacrifice to the non-existent pagan god, okay? So Aphrodite, let's, let's say. They would offer sacrifice. So they would take a third of the animal and offer sacrifice to this pagan god, to the idol, okay? Then the other third would be for them as a priest, okay? They could either eat it or they could sell it in the marketplace, So they could take this animal that was essentially for uh, the worship or the appeasement of the idol and they could then sell it, right? The the final third was for the people. So what these folks in Corinth are asking Paul, can we eat this meat? It's a fair question, okay? Like, can we eat meat that's been offered as a sacrifice to these pagan gods, to these idols? It is a great question, however... The way Paul approaches the answer shows that maybe it's not so much that these folks are confused about what idolatry is or eating idolatrous food, but their confusion is about God's love, okay? So looking on again then in verse 1, oh, by the way, if you want to read an entire book on this, here you go, okay, idol meat in Corinth, there you go, Uh, this, (laughs) I'm serious, like this is a real book, okay? So I know this looks like really awesome reading for you, okay? But just go on Amazon, one click buy, idol meet in Corinth, you'll come back next week and it'll be a dream. Here we go, okay. Now concerning, take that down, thank you. Now concerning food offered to idols, look at this. We know that, see the quotes, all of us possess knowledge. Now, we saw this earlier in Corinthians. Anytime that Paul used quotation marks, probably what's happening is he's taking an idiom or a quotation from the Corinthians themselves and he's kind of putting it back on them. So it's likely that the church or those who wrote the letter to Paul said this exact statement. Like, hey, we, all of us possess knowledge. But here's what Paul says to flip it on their face. He says, this knowledge, and he quotes again, look at this, puffs up, but love builds up. Now, um, I, I kind of have an affinity, as do most boys and certainly my own, I kind of have an, an affinity uh, with uh, balloons and popping them. Anyone else, right? It's kind of fun. What I've seen in my boys is a balloon is an excuse to have a grenade-like experience. You know what I mean? So here's a balloon. Give them any object, including their teeth, and they, they would just, they would love to pop it, right? So, so in terms of puffing up something, just imagine puffing up a balloon, right? So, so you blow into it and it expands. We could even say it swells. But everyone who's ever blown up a balloon knows that it is very fragile, right? Like, it can get pricked very, very easily. It can uh, float away. It, even though it swells, it has a breaking point. So what Paul is saying is knowledge 
puffs up. And very particularly what he's saying is, is it puffs up pride. But there's something else that he says here. He, he says, you know, knowledge puffs up, but look, love builds up. A love certainly put on a firm foundation has not a swelling approach, but a very strategic architectural approach. So my question, and I hope yours too, is how then does love build up? In fact, let's ask it this way. How does love, next slide please, how does love build up? But first, I think we should define love, eh? If we went to the streets of St. Charles, how many of you guys, that's, that's become like your new favorite jam? The streets of St. Charles, come on now. You got like, you got like all kinds of stuff, the, the AMC there, them sweet seats, you guys know what I'm saying, right? You got, you got the sweet seats, you got Prosino, the healthy restaurant, don't like going there. You've got um, Tacanos, the Brazilian meat place, right, that has been offered to idols, like really good. You've got, you've got you swirl, you guys like you, you know? It kind of tricks you into being healthy, and it's still great awesomeness, nectar from the Lord. Now, imagine, imagine if you went to the streets of St. Charles, and you took a, a microphone randomly that you have, okay? And, and you went around to people, right? And you just went, went up to them, and you said, so, hey, friend, uh, I'm a stranger. You don't know me, but I'm curious about something. Tell me, uh, tell me what is love. And they're not thinking the Hathaway song, right? What is love, baby? Right? Like, they have to define love, Okay? It would be really, really interesting to hear what people have to say. Uh, my question is this, and this is the question I get asked uh, a ton. Can a non-believer, in other words, someone who does not believe in God and Christ, can they experience love? Well, certainly in the Greek and, and even in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, there are different kinds of love. Uh, there's a, 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 a brotherly love. There's a love that only comes from Uh, God, so there are certain different understandings of love in the scripture, but I think scripture paints a very, very clear picture of the origination of love and who is encountering it. So I'll let you demise your own understanding. Look at this next slide, okay? Here we go from 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, verse 7, let us love one another for love is from where? It's from God, not a Hallmark card, not your best friend. It's from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, and I love this language, knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, what does it say? Come on. God is what? God is love, by definition. By definition. So God, in his character, is made up of love. When we look to God, what we see in all the facets of his character is a consistent deriving force of love. But he didn't just tell us about his character. He showed us his character. Romans 5 tells us about it. But God shows his love, previous slide, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm love and I'm awesome. Come and experience some of that love and that awesomeness. Instead, God displays, puts his love on on the massive stage, sends Jesus to die, even when every single one of us were still sinners. He didn't wait on our perfection. He didn't wait on our righteousness. He didn't wait until we shaped up. Instead, he comes in our weakest parts, in our depravity, and at that point, knowing all of us, he dies. It's beautiful. Okay. So for me, every single person on the face of the planet is looking for love at its core and at their core. 
That search ends in the character of God. That's what I found. Anyone else in that experience? So in other words, until you find and experience and encounter the unbelievable love of God, this gift, this beautiful gift of God that is his love, then you'll forever be looking for it. And as the country song says, probably in all the wrong places. I don't even know if that's a country song, but I hate country, so we'll go with it. <laughs> Next slide. So here's how love builds up. I want to show you guys this. Four things. There's certainly more. Number one, love binds all things together. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I know that many of you have uh, experienced things in your life that would say, no, 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 love doesn't bind things together. Love, love seems chaotic. Lo love has hurt me tremendously, Mark. I can't make what I'm about to say, I can't make your heart believe it. But it doesn't negate the truth. The truth of the scripture that we see in earlier in Colossians is that he holds all things together. He holds it all together. And so at the points that you feel like it's all falling apart, his love has transcended all of the chaos. It hasn't surprised him, and it hasn't dethroned him. I said when uh, my dear friend uh, Dana passed away of cancer this past September, I said at her funeral that cancer has not dethroned God, nor has your situation. However wretched or horrific it is, it hasn't dethroned him. The second thing that love does to build up, and again, there's many in the scripture, I'm just pointing out a few, is it casts out fear. Hello. Casts out fear, my friends. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, and there's only one kind of perfect love that comes from Christ, casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. All of a sudden, that's putting like all of our worry and anxiety and all the things that we're battling in pretty solid perspective. In other words, if we have the love of Christ, literally, what more do we need? If we've encountered, known, God's lavished his love on us, then what in the world could possibly even begin to reach that? It can't. It won't. It doesn't. Things try, and we get distracted. Well, my friends, the beauty of God's love is it casts out fear. Uh, thirdly, how does love build up? It covers over a multitude of sins. I hope and pray you guys have experienced this. Even within the body, uh, I fail often, and a lot of times people give me an opportunity to repent, which I appreciate that happened today. Uh, called a good friend. Um, they were very hurt by uh, a way that I communicated something, or, or rather a uh, lack of my communication. And thankfully, instead of just berating me, they gave me an opportunity to repent and apologize. I know I'm an idiot, so I, I know that I sin and fail and fall short. And so it was beautiful that in my confession of that sin, we got to leave the conversation having experienced a richness in the love of the brother and sisterhood in Christ. It was crazy. It was awesome. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins, beginning with Christ's love for us. 
And that's shared even within the body. We're so quick to judge, beret. We're so quick to uh, extend hatred to our brother and sister. But my friends, when you experience reconciliation in relationships in the body of Christ, oh my goodness, the beauty. And the world gets to see it. They get to see us not backbiting, but experiencing a love that covers over a multitude of sins. Knowledge puffs up. It's not, he's not negating knowledge. But knowledge in and of itself falls short. Okay? Love does an amazing thing in us. It builds up. Fourthly and finally, it controls believers. Hello. This is like a robotic thing, okay? Some of your favorite toys as a kid, especially if you were a boy, was the, the remote control cars, right? And now, now we have like big boy remote controls and drones. How many guys actually own a drone, okay? All right. One of, is it pretty big? Is it a nice drone, bro? Well, that's a big old drone. Is it flying above right now? Okay, no. Okay, Rana. I thought I saw you like doing your thing. Okay, cool, Rana. Well, drones are a big thing right now, all right? So is this what he's talking about? What I, I want to show you this text in 2 Corinthians. It's on the next slide. Check this out. This beautiful, beautiful uh, text. Um, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer, look at this, live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was raised. Here's why the love of Christ controls us. We encounter it. It makes no sense. It is beautiful. It lavishes and blankets us, and we spend the rest of our life in response to it. Worshiping the character of God. That's how his love controls us, because it is so beautiful, it is so awing the character of God that we spend the rest of our life worshiping in response to what he's done. So Paul's initial statement to Corinth is, listen, I know you come from Greek culture and I know they're really, really interested in knowledge, but you have to understand knowledge in and of itself is just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law who are looking at the definition of love in the face and kill them. Knowledge by itself puffs up. Love builds up. Then he adds this in verse 2. Check this out. Beautiful, beautiful language. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as, as he ought to know. What, 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 what is he trying to say? Um, <laughs> there's a good chance at many of your wedding, weddings okay, that you're going to have 1 Corinthians chapter 13 read. Okay, how many of you have been to a wedding where love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy? How, how many of you guys have been to a wedding where that's been read? All right. All of you and some liars. Okay, so listen. It's a famous verse, right? Love is patient, love is kind, and like the, everyone's singing Kumbaya in the background. Do you know the verses that precede love is patient, love is kind? Do you know them? Okay, let me show them to you, okay? Unbelievable. Check this out. Beautiful from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men... And of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And some of you who are in band, you're like, well, that's not a bad thing. I, 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 was, I was a percussionist. Yeah, we're not talking about that right now. Like, this is like a, this is like a bad noise. Okay. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and what? All what? Come on. If I understand all knowledge... And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains even, but have not love, the scripture says, I am nothing. 
if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, I mean, even to the sacrificial side, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is making clear to Corinth, and I hope is making clear to you tonight, all of these things that you think you're amassing, if they are not rooted in a God-centric love and then expressed in a love for God and for others, you have nothing. You could have all of the riches of the world. You could win the Powerball, my friends, and go crazy by a Lambo, by a 42-inch screen TV, which would just be awesome, right? You could just go crazy. You could have it all and still somehow not have anything. An old dead guy who's a theologian, he died in 2006 after living about 100 years. He was an Australian New Testament scholar. He said this, Leon Morris, I love this. Any true knowledge does not lead to pride in what we know, but to humility about what we do not know. Let me pause here for a second. I, I don't know um, why you or I have the audacity to think for one second that we have learned all, experienced all, and understand all. To make definitive statements outside of the scripture that somehow display a superior knowledge and understanding than anyone else. It's crazy to me sometimes when I sit down with a 20-year-old and that 20-year-old is trying to show me how much they know. And Mark, in this place in Revelation 23, I'm like, first of all, that's not even a real chapter. Okay, so you need to do your math a little bit better, okay? You know, and, and they're like, and, and this Greek word in this, I'm like, listen, true wisdom is knowing that you don't know. True wisdom is the humility to confess that you must keep growing. Uh, some of you have found yourself living your entire life to be right. You love arguing. You love when you hear a really cool, like, nugget of truth. Okay, some of you guys are familiar with this, but Louis Giglio had this, like, big thing about laminin out, where, like, it's this chromosome that looks like a cross, okay? We don't need to go into the whole thing, but some of you, when you heard that truth for the first time, like, you, you like, took it, Right, and then you showed up to another Christian brother and said, hey, have you ever heard of laminin? I was like studying it the other day by myself in my room. It's just crazy, like, and you like whip out a picture, right? And you pretty much preach the whole Louis Giglio sermon about laminin so that your friend will think you're awesome. Oh my goodness, I never knew that about laminin. I know me either. I just studied it yesterday, like the Lord spoke and just incredible. <laughs> Is your face ripped apart too like mine was? I know, like I must be awesome. Like, I have to confess to you, there have certainly, certainly been times in my past where I have shared nuggets of truth and my motive somewhere deep in there was so that you would walk away and say like, oh my goodness, like Mark, Mark knows so much about Artemis, the, the goddess, uh, the breast goddess in, in Ephesus or all these like weird historical facts. But my friends, if knowledge doesn't take us to the character of God, then what is it? 
So I, I believe that that's what Paul is doing with Corinth. Is he's saying, listen, listen, listen. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. You need to understand something that if you have everything, if you think you have all knowledge, like you, you need to know something, you don't. And so that needs to be your new wisdom. So instead of getting so conceited on your pursuit of knowledge, instead rest in the humility that he is all wisdom, that he's all knowledge. You don't have to be right. He already is. Are you guys, are you guys hearing me? Okay. You don't, you don't even want verse 3 right now. Okay? All right? This verse, seriously, has been so incredibly transformative. Verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And the truth is, sometimes it's good to be known and sometimes it's not. Some of you have gotten found out, right? Sin that you thought you could hide. And then all of a sudden, because truth is buoyant, that sin came out and you were found out. You were known. Wasn't so great to be known then, was it? You would have rather, like some of you want to tonight, hidden a corner. Don't want to be called out. Don't want to be embarrassed. Other times, uh, when it's to your credit, being known seems awesome. Just give you a little bit of an example. When I uh, play college football, one of the things that you always do after practice and games is you watch a lot of film. Okay. And you never, ever, ever wanted to do anything wrong in practice because guaranteed the coach was just going to rewind and rewind and rewind. And you were going to be known, all right, to every single person in the whole you know, uh, conference room there that you were an idiot, right? Uh, so, I mean, I remember this one day like, like, like yesterday, right? I mean, I had screwed up some quarterback drill, and, and the coach, like, he's like, hey, Sigma, you know, and I was kind of like, no, please, God, like, just go pass, right? Hey, Sigma, hey, look at this, right? And there's, you know, 50, 60 guys in the room, and he, he, re- he rewinds it like 10 times, you know, and I, like, just made a mockery of myself. It was a stupid move, whatever. Hey, you like that, Sigma? Hey, check that out. What, what was your problem here, right? And in that moment, like, every piece of me was like, listen, like, I want to change my name. I don't want to be known. Like, I, I see that. I, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. But then there were other practices, you know, where I... I I threw a TD or, or things look good or I, you know, I was like, come on, coach, give me some love here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I want to be known now. The, the amazing thing about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which makes absolutely no sense to any of us, is we can be known by God in spite of all of our depravity, wretchedness, and sin because of him. But verse 3 adds a very clear picture of that in the beginning. What does the beginning of verse 3 say? Let's read it again. Look at this. But if anyone what? What's the word? Loves God. So my question to you is how do you know that you love God? Because you sang it? Because you, you wrote a love letter to God? Put on the bottom, check here if you love me back. Like, how do you know that you love him? I'm asking that to you right now. Like, how do you know? 
Well, thankfully, Scripture paints a very, very clear picture. I say that, I, I think that some of you don't want this because you want to exist in this very humanistic perspective of love. It's easier that way. But instead, I want to show you the biblical picture. Little children, 1 John 3. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Loving God first has nothing to do with what you say. Think about the amount of believers that have confessed out of their mouth over and over, I love God, I love God, I love God. And then what they've done, what you've done, what I've done at times, is they've just... They've turned their back on God and said, no, actually, I love myself. I love a feeding from the faucet of my flesh. I love just enjoying my lusts and my passions. That's really what I love, but it makes me feel better when I say that I love God. So then I can go live like hell. And somehow I can find balance in that, say the right things, do the wrong things. And some of you have convinced yourself that that's love. It's sin, but I understand why some of you battle that because that's been your experience in relationships. Uh, some of your parents have said the words, but their actions have not met those. Some of you have really struggled with relationships because you've heard the word love you like it's candy, and yet the actions in those relationships said nothing but that. So then you begin to believe that somehow you can love others and not match a lifestyle of love at all. So Jesus adds this very intentional, difficult teaching in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. James 2 says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Our works are evidence of our salvation, not a means to be saved. But works are the fruit of what God has done. Will we obey Christ's commandments perfectly? No. But true devotion to God, like we talked about last week, does not imply perfection. True devotion means running after God in spite of the battles of my flesh, quickly repenting, returning to the Lord in spite of our failures. I just want to, make, I want to make sure you guys understand this tonight. You cannot, cannot say that you love God and spend your entire life disobeying what he's commanded of us. Do you guys understand that that does not work? It doesn't compute. Now, are you going to be perfect? No. Are you going to sin? Yes. But when the sin is so habitual... When the sin is so engulfing, when the sin is never getting to a place of repentance, when it's, I can, you know, do the Christian thing when it's convenient for me, but really what I'm really interested in is living for me when it's convenient, which is every other time. It doesn't work. That, that's the disciples pre the Holy Spirit in them. They were idiots, morons doing all kinds of things to show their humanness. But then they get the Spirit of God inside of them at the Pentecost, and all of a sudden things change. They saw the risen Christ, 
And now they were obeying commandments out of freedom and joy, not out of burden, which is why John says it this way. This is beautiful. Okay, next slide. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not are not burdensome, but their freedom, their joy. Listen, I know for sure that some of you have walked in here with zero confidence that God knows you. You don't feel loved by God. You don't feel cared for by God. I want to make clear tonight that you can leave this place knowing precisely that the God of the universe knows you. Just hang on that thought for a second. If you love God, the scripture says at the end of verse 3, he is known by God. So now that he set some strong theology and doctrine to all of this, the premise of this, now let's move on to his example in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, now we're back to our, our thought, our thesis, our premise, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that, again, the quotes, there is no God but one. I read this over and over and over. We know that an idol has no real existence. And I wondered if that would be our mantra. We know that an idol has no real existence. I wondered if we could say that in truth and honesty tonight. Or I wonder, the thing that maybe Paul is taking the words of the Corinthians or assuming himself, I'm wondering if we would say, no, actually, idolatry in our life, the things that have become consuming, the things that we began to worship apart from God, it's taken on an entire existence of its own. This relationship that started as so fruitful has now become a complete God in my life. I have in my mind taken God off his throne and taken this boy or taken this girl and put them right there and I've clothed them with purple robe to make sure that it, it's the, the robe of, loyal, of royalty and I've, I've set God back on the mantle and I grab him back every once in a while when it's convenient but really this relationship is the God and it's become this inanimate object. It's become this thing that you're longing after. It's become, listen, this thing that you're worshiping. For some of you, it's the pursuit of a career God has come off the throne. You've placed career and dreams and white picket fence and three and a half kids and a white, you know, like all of this, you've placed that on the throne. And so to say that idolatry has no real existence calls every single one of us to task and say, is it true? Could that be your statement tonight? That in all the things that are competing for the throne, I really believe that there is only one thing on it. Or tonight, would you say, actually, I'm confused on that issue as well. That's why I want to bring us back to the six things that we looked at earlier. Remember these? The things that cause confusion about God's love. I now want to add a seventh and probably most significantly Your idols, the things that are the go-tos, are the things right now in your life that are confusing God's love the most. They are seemingly competing 
They will never, ever win. But they're giving falsehood of hope because of what they provide your insecurity in the temporal. The dollar gives you a little bit of a caress. The relationship, a little bit of a caress. That nice word of affirmation, a little bit of a caress. The pursuit, the vision, maybe one day I'll be this, a little bit of a caress. It doesn't matter what you believe about any of those idols, it will never dethrone God, ever. In other words, you or I can put whatever the heck we want on all of that, but I want to make sure you understand, my attempts, the enemy's attempts, your attempts to dethrone God will never, ever prevail. That's why his commands are not burdensome. We actually just get to submit to the freedom that he really does sit on the throne and reign forever. So what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth is, listen, back to this food idolatry thing, I want you to understand. I want you to understand something. Okay, let's just read this verse again. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. I'm reminding you of this. Remember this. This is true. For verse 5. Although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Like, I know there's a lot of lowercase gods. I know there's a lot of competing things. I know there's a lot of things vying for your attention. And again, these are Christians where there's a God for everything around them. Not so different. They may not call themselves gods in our culture, it may not be Aphrodite and her temple of um, prostitute goddesses and spirits and weird stuff. But there's all kinds of lowercase gods that are saying, come on, come on. I've got something for you. I promise you great things. I promise you great wealth. I promise you great joy. Come on. And so the beautiful verse 6. Yet, in spite of all of that, for us, there is, look at this, one God. Oh my goodness. Could you imagine living in a polytheistic world and all of a sudden coming to Christ where there wasn't a God of the trough and a God of the pulpit and a God of the stage piece and all of a sudden I have clarity because there's one God overall. Could you imagine the clarity of that? Hold on a second. You're, there's one God? Yes. Yes. You don't have to run around exhausting yourself Naming every single God. You get to rest. Look at this in verse 6 again. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. All these other competing lowercase gods, they do not exist. They're not even real. Do you guys believe that? Do you believe that because this religion over here has said we believe in this God, do you understand that it's not just that they say that we believe in, they're making something up. Like, Mark, come on, man, that's bigotry. Mark, that's intolerant. How can you say, how can you say that, that their God isn't real? I mean, maybe it's real for them. Do you understand the very thing that the world calls Christians intolerant? is the one thing, the freedom that we have in Christ from the scriptures. There is one God. One God. And, and then the other religions say, right, well, yeah, there's one God, and we all find our way to him through all of our different means. No, it's only through Christ. That's what my Bible reads. 
And I'm so thankful. Why? Because I don't have to spend my time making my case so that I can say, God, here's all the awesome stuff that I've done. What do you think? Accept me or not? Did I do good enough or not? Did I serve enough homeless people or not? Instead, I get to be presented under the lens of his son, Jesus. Do you understand like how much greater that is just in general? If I was just looking at two world religions and I said, all right, Christianity, love, grace, mercy, or do everything I possibly can in the hopes that maybe one day a God will accept me or I'll be reincarnated. I'm just looking at the two and saying, God, thank you that you've provided us one way through your son Jesus to come to you as the Father. Yet for us there is one God the Father from whom all things are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He's telling the church in Corinth, listen, listen, listen. We're going to address some of these other things later uh, in the next couple chapters that Paul writes. But, but please, I want you to understand first, don't get confused. Maybe you're, you're seeking clarity on all of this uh, idolatry and food stuff. And maybe what you most need clarity on is the love of God. On who God is. It's with a really heavy heart that I share this next um, passage with you. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just so we're on the same page. There are a lot of people who will think that they are believers and are not. It's with a heavy heart that I say that because I don't want any of us to be that. But the reality is, Jesus says many, many are going to believe that what my word said is not true. He goes on to say this, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. God, look at what we've done. Remember what we saw in verse three? If you love God, then what? Then you're known by God? Look at what Jesus says next. And then I will declare to them, I never, what? What's the word? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, I do not want any single person in this room, any single person that I ever interact with to experience that. Because being known by God is the greatest gift that any of us could ever have. But some of you are so confused about the love of God that tonight you found yourself saying, even if there was a way to him, I wouldn't want it because his love seems so inconsistent. Before I do or say anything else, I want to pray right now that God will soften all of our hearts. Are you with me? 
So, Father, I know that there are plenty of hard hearts, hurting hearts, confused hearts. And I'm asking God right now, in your name and for your glory, that you will soften us collectively. That the lies would go by the wayside and that we could hang in the truth. Do that work right now in us, God. So it would be hopeless, listen, it would be hopeless if we ended with Matthew, Matthew 7. Many will say, Lord, Lord, good luck with that, everybody. I hope it's not you. I hope it's not you. But guess what? There is a very clear invitation from Christ to all of us tonight. Everyone tonight who's in earshot, listen, this is your invitation. Here's what Jesus says in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Here's what he says. Abide in my love. And when I think of the word abide, the word that comes to mind is hide. I mean, you get all up in that love. You hide in it. You bask in it. It umbrellas over you. His grace rains down on you. You abide in it, and he's inviting you into it. And you're like, Mark, well, well, what do you mean? I'm sure he's inviting the person down my road. No, no, you don't understand. He's inviting you. You. Abide in my love. Here it is. You don't have to believe any of those lies anymore. Idolatry doesn't have to confuse you any longer. Listen, that hurt, that pain, that struggle, that sickness, that death in your family does not have to confuse you anymore. My love is unending. My reign is forever. And you can abide fully, fully in all the love that I have for you. And at that point, your search for love will end because you'll have everything that you need. I can't make, listen, I cannot make a single one of you tonight run to that. I can't. I wish I could. I wish I could just like grab every single one of you and put a defibrillator on your heart and like cause some blockade in your mind so that you wouldn't believe the lies any longer. I can't make that happen. But all I can do is remind every single one of you that the thoughts that you've had, the lies that you've heard about why you're unlovable go against the invitation of Christ saying, come on. I know you feel unforgivable. Abide in my love. I know you feel like there's no way that will ever extend grace to you. Abide in my love. Come on. Sit in it. Rest in it. I know you've made a bunch of other things, idolatrous havens in your life. Come on. Abide in my love. And the image I have tonight in my mind are those right now who walked in here never having, abiding one day in his love, just running to him. And all of the exhaustion and the regret and the shame completely freed. The bondage of slavery, of sin just gone. Are you with me? And I'm picturing you, my brothers and sisters in Christ right now, who so quickly have gone from, I doubt God's love, to maybe there's no God. All of a sudden, having this restored, 
beautiful picture of the gift that really is his love. And again, he didn't just tell us about it. He showed us. Think about the night when he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. It wasn't a myth or a fairy tale. He was really going to do it. His body was really going to be broken. He was really going to bleed out so that you could sit in this room now and share and bask in his love. And so he tells the disciples, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of what? In remembrance of a sacrifice. That would be a means of encountering my love. And then he holds up the cup. And he says, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. And he tells his disciples to take and drink. I have to imagine that at that point and soon later in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus wrestles with the call. This image of the love of the Father that we just read about was running all through him and now can run all through us. He will never abandon you. In his son, he will always forgive you. And his love through his son to you will never end. And there is nothing that can separate you from it. So come to this table tonight. Share in this joy tonight. Take a piece of this bread and dip it in the cup as we remember the sacrifice of Christ and the love for his sons and daughters. Respond when you're ready, church.